0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Djadjawarong and the Watterarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. And Action, action,
0: Uh, okay, all right, yeah, let's do it. Hello and welcome to Chickstery,
1: the podcast that is rewriting history books to an... I just got a mouthful there. Let's try it again. Hello and welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name is Annie and that is Phoebe. It's very serious. Hello, yes, it is serious.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Pray for me. I don't know what I'm doing.
1: You were just crying as well. I was. You're just Okay, please God make this episode go okay.
0: <laughs> please let me speak the words properly oh i just
1: edited our app that's just gone up today
0: and let me tell you
1: i quite a bit hit the mm. cutting room floor
0: yes well
1: <laughs> it was one of those uh it was one of those episodes you well, know those sometimes, days. That, happens. sometimes mm. that happens what are you we're gonna
0: an, do we're only human we're only human what are you gonna do when you live in a
1: shoe Wear socks.
0: Hmm. Uh, what's been happening this week with you? Um, look, I actually just had this recollection, which you and I spoke about last at the end of last season, yeah, off air. Um, I just wanted to tell you that you know how you did um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, yes. An episode on her. Yes. I was doing some work for a client and she had, her sister had done the family tree back in the 1960s. Yeah. Anyway, so I had to decipher it so it was readable essentially because it was so confusing. Anyway, Eleanor of Aquitaine right. appeared on the tree. Yes. So all the way back to William the Conqueror. Oh my goodness. I know. It ended up being 28 generations and it was over we printed it it was over two meters long holy shit yeah it was amazing it was so confusing have you ever done something that long no i haven't and i look i didn't do the research but it was deciphering the research that had been done and there were tears there was yelling (laughs) oh my goodness it had all been typed up on um you know, in the typewriter, etc., cetera, and just yeah. the way that they connected everyone was very confusing. But, you know, right. going through going, oh, gee, some of these names look really familiar.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Did you tell her she was, like, related to an amazing chick in history? Mm, I did. She
0: was very, very excited. So, yeah, that was cool. I thought I'd just share that little,
1: that little <laughs> nice. bit. Well, I... Listen to one of your recommendations, which I don't think we did on air. I think we chatted about it when we, when we were off air mm-hmm. last week. I listened to, is it Finding Samantha? Mm. And oh my Lord.
0: You need a flow chart. It's really, it's a lot.
1: You know, it starts when she's the girl at the GPO and in Ireland. And then, you know, you're kind of going, where is this going? And then you work out, you know, you find out the whole story of of that she. Does this quite a bit and has done this quite a bit. And some of the families that she had been <gasps> for and taken the children. And, oh,
0: and it's, it's just, just so more- scary because the way they talk about it, you you would try, like, I would trust someone. Yeah. If they yep. came to me in that capacity.
1: Like, 100%. Yeah,
0: of course. Like, you've got all your, you know, and it's gaslighting 101, essentially. Yeah. yeah. But it's scary that she's affected so many lives
1: fooled so many people but Mm. the psychology behind why she would do that Mm. so yeah give that one a listen it was really good
0: do you have a historical fact for us today (laughs) i do it's not well it's a fact but it's also just a little story that i thought was quite funny when i was Um, looking into facts today. So in July 1807, Napoleon had just signed the Treaty of Tilsit. I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was two agreements signed by the French Emperor Napoleon in the Russian town of Tilsit after his victory in Friedland. The first agreement was signed between Napoleon and the Russian Emperor Alexander, and the second was signed by Prussia, thereby ending the war of the Fourth Coalition and cementing Napoleon's control over Central Europe. That's not the fact. But anyway, like <laughs> just you're like, oh, my- that's great to know. Good. <laughs> cool. Cool. Just give me a bit of background. Anyway, <laughs> Napoleon was happy about this and was ready to celebrate his victory. So he was ready to party. Oh, uh, yeah. And how did he feel he wanted to celebrate, you may ask? How did he, he feel he <laughs> wanted to celebrate? Yeah, he thought a rabbit hunt would be perfect way to celebrate. Yeah. Okay. -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his chief of staff, Alexander Béthier, was sent off to collect all of the bunnies for the said hunt whilst inviting some of the other very important military men to join in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bettiere wanted to impress, so he collected hundreds, possibly thousands, it's refuted up to 3,000, it's been reported, um, bunnies, who he believed would be eager to flee once they were released from their cages and thus be great fodder for the celebratory hunt. Well, once the rabbits were released, they did the exact opposite and instead of running away to be attacked, they ran towards Napoleon and attacked him. (laughs) So what the group initially thought was quite humorous led to terror when the bunnies began running up Napoleon's legs where his (laughs) men attempted to beat them off with sticks. So it seems that Béthier had failed in his job at collecting wild hares and instead had gone the easier route and just purchased some tame rabbits who were just looking for a bit of food when they were released. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. That is hilarious. Right, your turn. Let's do it.
1: I hope, you know, even though we know that some weeks, I'm just like, oh. is it you or is it is me? No, it's um, you. <laughs> is that because I just edited your one as well. I'm thinking, mm, is it? Yeah.
0: Is it? I do the same every week. Oh my every God. <laughs> I hope I hope you. What did but I do I'm last week? It. Sit back and relax and let you do all the talking. Okie dokie. Let's hit it. Vera Scantlebury was born in Linton, a gold mining town near Ballarat, on the 6th of August 1899. Vera was the daughter of Dr George James Scantlebury, a medical practitioner, and Catherine Millington Baines, who had both been born in Victoria. Dr Scantlebury, during his life and career, had taken a great interest in psychiatry and even took mentally ill patients into the family home in Cheltenham, where they would stay with the Scantlebury family. From a young age, Vera also took a great interest, which essentially would influence her life. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Vera went to school at Turak College before going to medical school at the University of Melbourne, where she was well-liked and had won affection amongst her peers, as well as academic distinction. Vera was one of the first women to study medicine at the University of Melbourne. And knowing what we do through our research here at mm. Chick Street, we can only mm. assume that would not have been smooth sailing amongst her male peers and teachers.
1: Goodness, no. We know yeah. that a lot of buildings didn't even have female toilets for mm. women. Exactly. So she maybe didn't even she had to probably go. Some women, I think we've done a woman before who had to go home during the during her classes to go to the toilet because mm. there were no no women's toilets anyway.
0: No, no facilities. Yes. Mm. In 1914, Vera graduated from the University of Melbourne with her Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery. After graduating, Vera, now Dr. Scantlebury, was appointed resident medical officer at the Melbourne Hospital. Whilst there, she had applied for a vacancy at the Children's Hospital and although she had been one of the top six students of her year, the honorary staff had ranked her last in the three applicants and she missed out on the job. Were the other two men? They would have been. (laughs) A few months later, in April 1915, Vera applied for another vacancy and this time was ranked first ahead of a male doctor and successfully joined the resident staff of the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. By this time, war was raging and Vera wanted to be able to assist in her capacity as a surgeon. And by all accounts, things were not looking great on the battlefields. In the last months of 1914, which equated to the first months of war, Australian enlistments alone were more than 50,000. The following year, Australia sent over 165,000 men to war. Mm. However, women doctors were not permitted to join the Australian Army, even with the heavy casualties that they were experiencing. And this was not something that was permissible until the Second World War.
1: Yeah, right. God, silly. Mm. They could really used them, I'm sure.
0: Uh, As an aside, during the theatres of the First World War between 1914 and 1918, about 213,000 members of the Australian Imperial Force became battle casualties. So that equated to nearly 54,000 deaths, 4,000 were taken prisoner and 155,000 were wounded. So that's Australian troops. In Britain, the total casualties were 876,000, which included 167,000 deaths due to wounds Hundred and thirteen thousand deaths due to disease or injury. One hundred and sixty-one missing or presumed dead, and fifteen mm. thousand prisoner of war deaths. God, and just you just see each of those people had people.
1: Yeah, so it was I just know. it
0: affected everyone. So Vera, in February nineteen seventeen, knowing she would never be able to join her own countrymen—not countrywomen, aside mm. from the nurses—she mm-hmm, mm-hmm. decided she was still going to assist in the medical field, regardless. She paid her own way and sailed to England on the RMS Moraya alongside Dr. Phoebe Chappell, an Adelaide University graduate who would later be awarded the Military Medal for Gallantry and Devotion to Duty. Oh, go girls. I know. I just wanted to add that in because she had my name. Once, Once Vera had arrived on the shores of England, she became attached to the British Royal Army Medical Corps. In England, the medical care throughout the First World War was largely the responsibility of the Royal Army Medical Corps, whose job it was to both maintain the health and fighting strength of the forces in the field and ensure that in the event of sickness or wounding, they were treated and evacuated as quickly as possible. Each battalion had a medical officer who was assisted by 16 stretcher bearers. The medical officer was tasked with establishing a regimental aid post near the front line. From here, the wounded were evacuated and cared for by men of the field ambulance in an advanced dressing station. So note that these first responders were all male. Shocker. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there were definitely women in the field hospitals during the wartime in their capacity as nurses. But Britain did not actually call for the enlistment of female doctors until 1916, by which time they were in desperate need for more medical staff due to the high casualty rate. Women were permitted to join the war office-sanctioned military hospitals both in Britain and overseas in places such as France, Serbia and Malta. However, they were denied official Royal Army Medical Corps rank and the authority and status that accompanied such a rank, including uniform and badging. So they were just as qualified but
1: mm. not recognised. it's that like you can come and do it and just, you know, we were going to take everything that you've got to offer, but we're not going to give you recognition for it. Yeah. So yeah. You're just like a little pretend doctor. Yeah. 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 You, you know, Pretend
0: one. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretend <laughs> badge <batch laughs> and uniform. Make it up yourself. But do all the work. Mm. Yeah. Once Vera arrived in England, she was one of 19 or 20 Australian female doctors who were working overseas as surgeons or medical officers in connection to the war effort. Vera was to be one of the youngest doctors upon her arrival in her new position, where she was to become an assistant surgeon to Dr. Louisa Garrett Anderson and Dr. Flora Murray at Endell Street Military Hospital, which was located in Coventry Garden in central London. All mm-hmm. oh, women. Yes. The Endell Street Military Hospital was substantially staffed by suffragists yeah. Who, yeah, and had been established by two female medical pioneer, pioneers, Louisa Garrett Anderson and Flora Murray. Louisa was the daughter of pioneering female Dr. Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who we were introduced to briefly in another episode, Mm -hmm. uh, five episode 10, about Dr. Aleta Yaqub.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah.
0: So she was the first woman to gain a medical degree in England and created the London School of Medicine for Women, which she'd opened in 1874. Flora, the other woman credited with opening Endell Street, wrote that with the outbreak of the war, Female doctors knew instinctively that the time had come when great and novel demands would be made upon them and that a hitherto unlooked-for occasion for service was at their feet. Louisa and Flora were partners, medical practitioners and members of the Women's Social and Political Union Suffragettes, and the couple founded the Women's Hospital Corps, or the WHC, when the First World War broke out and recruited women to staff it. The two doctors believed that the British War Office would reject their offer for help because, hello, women, (laughs) (laughs) and knowing that the French were in need of medical assistance, they offered their services to the French Red Cross instead, which was readily accepted, and the WHC began operating their hospital in a newly built hotel in Paris. Go the French. Go the French. Dr. Flora Murray wrote in her diary that visiting representatives of the British War Office were shocked to find a <sighs> such a successfully running hospital operated by women. No, no, shocker! And the hospital soon became treated as a British auxiliary hospital rather than a French one. they oh, so are like, oh, look, we've done something. Let's take all the cred. But mm. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Let the French fend for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> In January 1915, as war casualties began to be evacuated to England for treatment, the War Office invited doctors Murray and Anderson to return to London and run a large hospital, which would be known as the Endell Street Military Hospital. By the time Vera had arrived at the hospital, it had 573 beds with another 230 in attached auxiliary voluntary aid detachment hospitals a staff of over 180 people and where the women surgeons performed up to 20 operations per day and sometimes as many as 80 soldiers would arrive each night. Oh, shit. Mm. So every staff member, with the exception of a small unit of orderlies, was female in that hospital. Wow. The hospital cared for more than 26,000 patients between May 1915 and September 1919.
1: God, that, so hang on. Five hundred beds, mm-hmm. then two hundred out the back. Yeah, seven hundred. They so say it was four hundred and something. So say seven hundred. There was a hundred of them. So there's like mm. seven patient the, to the one ratio. Yeah. Oh my lord! I
0: know. So that is female doctors treating male patients, something that was not at all common prior to the war. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Vera's own experience in Australia before her departure was that women surgeons in Melbourne practiced solely in women's health at the Queen Victoria Hospital for women and children and were unable to gain positions at other Melbourne hospitals.
1: Mm.
0: So although Vera admitted to struggling in her early days in the hospital, thrown into what would have been fast-paced, traumatising and largely unknown circumstances. However, 18 months into her tenure, Vera had performed dozens of surgical procedures, which she nonchalantly listed as all in a day's work, and included tying off a femoral artery, repairing a damaged shoulder joint, repairing a gunshot wound to a hip joint, performing a secondary amputation, which meant completing and tidying up an amputation done in a field hospital, and setting a fractured scapula.
1: Oh. No, thank you No all of those. No.
0: So over her two years spent at Endell Street, Vera wrote and recorded all of her experiences in 19 diaries and <gasps> letters. Wow. Yeah, and detailed everything. Uh, these diaries also focused on three major features she recognised most likely affected the nature of her own leadership, future leadership roles. Firstly, the particular leadership of commanding officers, which would have included Louisa and Flora, yeah. which the considerations about their way of life and that of many single professional and independent women whom Vera worked alongside in London and the ever-present women operating a large and complex organisation in a challenging environment
1: mm.
0: so although there was no official rank for these women the soldier patients were well aware of the hierarchy and Vera was known as the little lieutenant doctor
1: oh i mean great but see mm. we well, have they just
0: everything's got to be d- diminished and mm. um, the lit Little Lieutenant, yes. Just make it
1: little. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cute little one. Mm. Unless she was short, but that's not come up in any of my research. I don't know.
1: I don't think she was. I, I re- yeah, I think it's more of a, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think
0: you're on to something. <laughs> In January 1919, Vera described her place of work as that beehive of an operating theatre with its hot, stifling atmosphere and white-gowned and hooded women moving ceaselessly about and stretches pushed hither and thither and the sweet, heavy, sickly fumes of the chloroform. I mean, it just sounds, like, delightful, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's the chloroform. Gets me. (laughs) Vera worked at the hospital until after the armistice and returned to Australia in 1919. Once she returned, she was given a number of honorary appointments at several hospitals, which included honorary anaesthetist at the Women's Hospital from 1920 to 1922, honorary clinical assistant at the Children's Hospital from 1920 to 1924, and honorary physician and surgeon at the Queen Victoria Hospital from 1920 to 1926. Hmm. She also held honorary positions at the Victorian Baby Health Centres Association and the Free Kindergarten Union of Victoria. So honorary appointments were awarded to recognise individuals who were to make significant ongoing contributions through world-class, values-based teaching, research, research training, engagement, leadership and service. Oh, good.
1: See, she finally got that recognition. Yeah, exactly. She's not the little lieutenant anymore.
0: <laughs> Throughout her career, Vera, Vera had worked closely with children and infants and was appointed as the honorary medical officer to the Melbourne Church of England Girls Grammar School, which essentially allowed her to set up regular medical inspections of pupils in private schools. Two years after Vera had returned from her war service and with all her honorary responsibilities, she was to become part-time medical officer in charge of city baby health centres. Mm. Ten years after she attained her Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery, in 1924, Vera was awarded a degree of Doctor of Medicine and promptly visited New Zealand, Canada and the United States to study child welfare work. The year following, the Victorian government appointed Dr. Vera Scantlebury and Dr. Henrietta Mayne, to undertake a survey of the welfare of women and children. Their report led to the Victorian government establishing the Infant Welfare Division in the Department of Public Health. Dr. Scantlebury was appointed part-time director, a position she held until her death. Why part-time, you may ask? (laughs) Hmm. Why part time? <laughs> well, she had children. <laughs> mm, well, on the eighteenth of September, nineteen twenty-six, Vera married Dr. Edward Byam Brown, mm-hmm. a lecturer, and then later an associate professor of engineering at the University of Melbourne. Because Vera had married, her appointment to the department could only be in a part-time capacity, as she was ineligible to work full time. Why? Well. She was married and public service rules made her ineligible for full-time position because she would be so busy at home, making the meals, doing the housekeeping and having the children. (laughs) After the couple had married, they went on to have two children, a boy and a girl, which provided Vera with practical experience to complement all her theoretical knowledge with regards to childcare, skills that she had honed over many years. Under Vera's guidance in her role as a Director of the Infant Welfare Division, the sphere of infant welfare work expanded significantly and quickly. She introduced a compulsory course and exam for sisters at infant welfare centres whereby the knowledge distributed was a factor in lowering infant morbidity and mortality rates. Her capacity as director, she also established relationships with obstetric services, which enabled expectant mothers to attend welfare centres for supplementary advice. Mm In 1929, she published a book called *A Guide to Infant Feeding*, where her husband also assisted her in making the measurements and calibrations for her tables, uh etc. Vera was a pioneer in her efforts to broaden infant welfare to include preschool aged children. And in 1937, she wrote a report for the National Health and Medical Research Council, which prompted the Commonwealth Government to allocate £100,000 of funding for the benefit of preschool children. This was also the instigator to the establishment of the Lady Gowrie Child Centres. So the Lady Gowrie Child Centres had been established after another remarkable remarkable woman, Lady Zara Gowrie, and others who formed the Nursery School Committee, which had been established to consider ways of furthering the new nursery school experiment in Victoria. The committee was renamed the Demonstration Nursery School Committee in 1932, and by 1938, the women and the committee had made plans that it should be established in each capital city, at which not only will the methods of care and instruction of young children be tested and demonstrated, but also problems of physical growth, nutrition, and development will be studied. Mm-hmm. Dr. Scandalby Brown, as she was now known, so she kept her maiden name,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was not integral
0: that. in securing government funding and support for these centres. In 1944, in her capacity with the Department of Public Health, Vera also added preschool to its child welfare responsibilities. Preschool activities, including paying subsidies to free kindergartens, were also placed under her supervision. And her vision and enthusiasm achieved a further success in 1945 when the state government decided to bring under the health department the care of expectant mothers and all children up to six years of age. Mm. So Vera had been a pioneer in three medical fields, not including her time spent in England helping the war wounded. She was integral in infant welfare, antenatal, and preschool care in Victoria and Australia. She was deeply respected for her professional abilities and was said to be a kind, generous, and warm woman. In 1938, Vera was appointed Order of the British Empire for her distinguished work in preventative medicine. Mm, God. Dr. Vera Scantlebury brown who was commonly known as Dr. Vera, died of cancer in 1946 when she was only in her mid-50s. Several months after her death, the Vera Scantlebury brown Child Welfare Memorial Trust was established in her honour. This still runs to this day and under the terms of the trust, the scholarship is awarded to support the professional development of women working in the areas of maternal and child health, early childhood education, prenatal, child and family health development and well-being, and applications are only open to women.
1: What a legacy.
0: Yeah. Vera had worked tirelessly until her death to create a professional and universal statewide system of maternal and child health services, free to all parents during her time working in infant welfare. Vera had worked determinedly to reduce the infant mortality rate in Victoria, and it was much due to her efforts that that rate dropped in her 20 years working from 73.8 per 1,000 infants to 35.8 per 1,000 infants. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Huge. On the 18th of April 2023, a life-sized bronze statue was erected at Dr. Vera Scantlebury Brown, which stands at the Linton Avenue of Honour. Vera became the 11th woman to be honoured in statue form in Victoria. We
1: love a statue of a woman. Mm. It's rare. It's rare. We want to add a little applause in there. Statue applause every time we mention (laughs) someone who gets
0: a statue. Because it's very rare. It is. So that's Vera. She had a short life, but... Made impact. a huge impact. Mm. Yeah,
1: it's funny how she um, well, not funny, but yeah, how she went to, she did the whole war thing, and obviously was treating men, soldiers, and then she she flipped and was all about the children. Mm.
0: Yeah, so I she wonder. had been at the um, Melbourne Women and Children's Hospital hospital before she left, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know whether that piqued her interest or yeah, oh, I don't know. But it's too amazing too that she began that work when she returned and she didn't have children of her own and that she actually did keep working she was allowed to keep working once she did have children yeah so exactly another, exactly
1: yeah, yeah that's I thought that's what you were going to say when she wasn't had to do part time
0: because mm. we
1: know even yeah women who had children i think if you were married well if you were married you couldn't work anyway so then
0: mm. and the public <sighs> service um as soon as you got pregnant you were Mm. you're yes. out
1: yeah mm. yeah and it, yeah but you were allowed to be fired mm. being pregnant. yeah oh, yeah so God, just fun times
0: oh, fun I know I know
1: <laughs> oh well done that was good good on you Vera
0: well done Vera so you can um see her you just you can google her um and there'll be there's photos of her statue that come up so it's pretty Aww. cool I saw I saw her statue not in person but I saw it come up on Instagram I thought oh, I'm gonna look into Vera
1: Good on you.
0: Yeah, fascinating.
1: And imagine getting your hands on those letters and diaries.
0: (gasps) Yeah, so they are actually, um, they're held at the University of Melbourne archives. I think you do need permission from the family to to access access them.
1: them. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Another great story of women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but you have now. So there you go. We'll be back next week. We will. Another chick. And, yeah, look, just wanted to say a quick thanks to our loyal listeners who are still listening to us. We were worried that because we had such a big break that people weren't going to be listening to us anymore, but you're listening. So thank you. Thank you. We really, really appreciate it. This is a passion project for both of us, so it means a lot. It really does. Hmm. So thanks. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in your ear holes next week.